Hello, hello, hello. Welcome along to Benchcast. I'm Neville O'Donoghue, and this is a podcast for bench warmers. Listen to me now, listen to me. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. We're going to do it. Tyson Fury. It's Torres to give Chelsea a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. You're a county? Absolutely not. That's a load of rubbish, Brechon, to be quite honest. Uh, He's a disgrace to have a football club. What a belt he's given it. I, 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 I love I love I love me county, you know. We love Jamalans! Oh, On the show today I have former professional footballer Stan Connemore. Stan played professional football for the best part of 20 years, having played for such clubs like Liverpool, Aston Villa and Leicester City. Stan now works in the media game and is involved in South End United. I sit down and talk to Stan about the Premier League, about the ups and downs in life and life as a professional footballer. Sit back, relax, and give it a listen. Enjoy. Stan Connemore. Stan, thanks for coming on the pod first off. And before we start, I must say, I love the last word and when you were on Talk Sports. Uh, what I love is you're a guy that gives his opinion and doesn't sit in the fence, whether you like it or not. So with that, I know I only have you for a few minutes. So first off, I'd like to ask you about the story everyone's talking about in the last week or 10 days. Um, I suppose the Chelsea scenario, and I was just interested in uh, your opinion on what you thought of Jurgen Jurgen Klopp's press conference last Friday and his thoughts on the whole Chelsea situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that firstly, it's a very complex situation, but it's a complex situation that could have been avoided. You have a fit and proper person's test, or you should, which is supposed to be able to provide checks and balances to be able to come in and own our football clubs. If, we'd have, if we would have had the financial situation that we're in in football in 2022, in 1932, who'd have said that some of the most odious men on the planet through sport washing wouldn't have wanted to own football clubs? That's effectively what's happening. Now, the argument I think that the EFL, the FA and the Premier League give is that it was just for rogue small businessmen to make sure that they tick boxes in terms of the legalities of owning a company per company's house. But surely they saw coming the growing number of people around the world that were owning sporting organisations to be able to use it for sport washing. So when I see Chelsea fans going, don't blame the fans, when I see Ken Bates saying, oh, that'll scare Putin... When I say, see, um, you know, I had a message from a, a very well-known Chelsea fan via direct message saying, Stan, it's not Chelsea fans. Um, there's going to be people losing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. All very sad, and I'd agree with that. But if you let somebody in that you know is dodgy in the first place, firstly, it's the FA's fault, it's the Premier League's fault, the EFL's fault, not having fit and proper person's test. But secondly, football fans, you're a fan, I'm a fan. I've never seen any football fans circle Stamford Bridge or circle 
the, the Parc de Prance or Circle St. James's Park saying, no, we don't want these people at our club. We have a moral objection. Yeah. Everybody's been come on in. And if you, if, if you, if you don't believe me, I did a, a poll. There's been about 15,000 people uh, voted on, on, on Twitter on it. And the majority of fans to about 60, 40 said, we would either hold our noses to ropey dictators coming in or we would welcome them with open arms. So we can't have a situation where people are crying and saying, oh, my club, what's going on? Chelsea Football Football Club have had 20 years of unparalleled success, won every trophy there is to win, and there are virtually no Chelsea fans that didn't know Roman Abramovich's past. Now, talking about Jurgen Klopp or Eddie Howe when he's been asked about the, the Saudi influence... I'm, I'm always a little bit awkward in football people answering those questions about geopolitics because, one, they shouldn't. They are football people. Secondly, they should be protected by the laws and rules which allow only people in that, that are fit and proper. Um, but now we know that we have um, the United Arab Emirates. We know we have Saudi. We know we have, we've had various Russians. We've had various Chinese owners come in is that I'm, sh- I'm afraid it doesn't wash anymore, whether it be Jurgen Klopp, whether it be Ralph Rangnick, whether it be Frank Lampard, whether it be Eddie Howe, you're working for companies who you know who the ownership structure is. And if you can honestly sit there in a press conference and say, well, I don't know about the geopolitics, it's rubbish. It's yeah. staring you in the face every day on Twitter, on social media, on every newspaper, on every... So I think that now, unfortunately, football managers have to be a little bit more politically savvy. And dare I say, a generation of managers moving forward, if there's not going to be a fit and proper person's test worth its salt, that are going to have to answer uh, or be asked and answer um, question, political questions. I'll give you one example. Pep Guardiola wore a solidarity ribbon with... The, the Catalonian struggle for the um, independence from, from Spain. Yeah. Already, Catalonia is a, a semi-independent um, state within, the, obviously, the Spanish Republic. Um, but then asked about Abu Dhabi, he doesn't answer it. I yeah. mean, you can't be hyper-political about Catalonia and then turn around and say, the, the people that actually pay my wages, I know nothing about. So I feel... Football managers do have very, very powerful voices around the world that could potentially change a lot of these countries, organisations. For example, somebody like a Pep Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp that are massively popular around the world, if the argument is that they can walk into their owners and have an influence on their business practices or their sovereign state practices, I'm all for it. If Pep says, I'm a Catalonia independence fighter... And I'm going to fly to Abu Dhabi because I'm not happy with what the way that Abu Dhabi are dealing with the war in Yemen. He might be able to have a say. But what we can't have anymore is people that are employed by Newcastle United, that is employed by the, 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 the Saudi state, or employed by Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi uh, who were employed by uh, the United Arab Emirates, and not say anything. Because that, then that comes across as hypocrisy. And I think that Pep, Jurgen, Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, they all have the power to be able to change a lot of this 
from the inside because football, if nothing else, is the arguably the world's biggest entertainment industry. Some people probably say Hollywood, some people say music. But somebody like a Jurgen Klopp could have a real say and Pep Guardiola have a real say in terms of changing. If, if sovereign states are here forever, let's see managers of football clubs change things from the inside. And I think they genuinely could. Yeah, what, what did you think of... That, that leads me on to my next question. What did you think of Frank Lampard saying he only met him a handful of times? Like, I thought, I don't like the way he, he runs for the hills, you know? Like, at least just admit it, like, you know? Like, what, what were your thoughts on Frank Lampard there? Well, I think that's the thing that... But, uh, I have ultimate respect for all of these guys, and I, I have the respect of all of them as football managers. And part of me says they shouldn't be involved in politics. But if you then join an organisation that by virtue of the fact that the ownership structure has sovereign states, you are going to get questions about the activities of that sovereign state. So I think it's a weird transitional time. Look, in 20 years' time, if China officially owns a Premier League club, if, you know, I was reading the other day, Norway has the the, the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, 1.3 trillion. If Norway decide to own a football club if the united kingdom government say on behalf of the or the irish state says on behalf of the irish people we think it's a, a bloody good investment to buy brentford it's going to work it's going to be realized 10 million uh, 10 billion pounds in the next 50 50 to 100 years that's that's a good thing that we can purchase on behalf of the state no problem but as long as managers in 20 or 30 years time realize that they're working for quasi-political entities, they should then answer the questions. I'm going to give Eddie Howe, Frank, Jürgen and Pep a bit of a pass because we're in the transition period from Joe Bloggs, who owns a printing company, um, is not going to be asked questions about uh, human rights abuses in Yemen or in anywhere else. So managers are not used to that questioning. But I do think that you, you, you make an excellent point is that just by fudging it, by saying this isn't my remit, it's not going away. I mean, no. Eddie Howe's been asking, what, three or four different press conferences now about Saudi's uh, involvement in Yemen, which, of course, has been heightened with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and those questions will continue to come. Um, Frank Lampard, of course, joined a club in Everton that had Russian investment. And the Russian companies via Rusmanov have now stepped away. He knew what that was. He knew what it was when going into Chelsea Football Club. And Frank is a very bright kid. So, look, I'll give them, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because it's all very new. There hasn't been a situation whereby um, football clubs have been owned by oligarchs, have had sanctions by the vast majority of the planet. Everybody, to be perfectly honest, held their nose whether it be uh, journalists. I mean, I used to go and do a lot of Chelsea games and I used to be very critical and I'd always try and stick in a little barb now and again on radio or, and I'm like, you know, no to billionaires toys. You always had to be very careful about what you wrote specifically about Roman Abramovich because he was very litigious. Now all gloves are off. You can say whatever you like. But when you go in the press lounge at Chelsea, salmon, caviar, all for the press guys, you know? Mm. So you feed somebody well through their belly, they're a little bit less likely to say anything. All the way to the top level where you pay somebody 150 grand to go to Chelsea instead of 120 grand to Man United 
You hold your nose, you play, you win your trophies. We get it. We all are hypocrites to a greater or lesser degree. But I think to answer your question bluntly about managers is that if you join a club where you know you have a sovereign, particularly a sovereign state, but uh, an owner that has been let through the fit and proper person's test but isn't fit and proper, be prepared to answer questions about them. I think that's only fair. Yeah, uh, I put up a poll last night to ask questions uh, to, to you that I do that with all my guests coming on. And one of the questions that came in is like, do you think the UK government now in the Premier League will step in and should step in to uh, make it more sustainable and stop these sugar daddies from coming in and just buying up these clubs? Yeah, I mean, you made, you made a great point there about sustainability. We're all addicted to sugar. My poll basically proved that 60% of people said, as long as you can guarantee my insert club trophies, we don't care. And we should care because we all love the game and we all love the support, the sport, because going back to its history and traditions, whether that be in Ireland, whether that be Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, they were community clubs. Yeah. Virtually every club that we all support has a community trust. Um, which does incredible work with schools and colleges and disadvantaged people. That doesn't sit well with somebody at the top end throwing loads of money at it and putting advertising boardings around for their, their sovereign state. I think government will get involved. I'm, I'm less likely and less confident that the particular this particular Conservative government will, will do anything because you only have to see with what's happened with Russian money that's gone into London, yeah. um, that there's been a real reluctance to do anything about it, and in some cases donated to the Conservative Party. So for the Conservative Party to all of a sudden, you know, Tracy Crouch has been very vocal on it uh, and did a great review, a, 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 a sort of root and branch review, is that people want good governance. Gary Neville, people like myself, Henry Winter um, at the Times, all banging the drum for good governance. But if you look at the Saudi example, apparently that was kind of like personal pleas to Boris Johnson. Yeah. You know, somebody said, I read the other day that Boris Johnson and, and Bin Salman are, uh, text each other. Right. That doesn't look to me as if um, sugar daddies or sovereign states are going to go any, away anytime soon. And we have to be honest that once the Ukraine war ends and once peace breaks out, hopefully, God willing, in the next days and weeks, is that the next person to come from the next part of the world that wants to buy a Arsenal, have Rwanda on the side of the shirts? Yeah. You know, you only have to look at the recent history of Rwanda to say, would it be worth asking the question that for a country that is now looking to put advertising money into an English football club, that that money wouldn't be better spent in Rwanda? Yeah, OK, well, you can say, well, we want people to come to Rwanda, tourism amazing wildlife or what have you, but there have been questions about Rwanda and its government to this day. So from my perspective, I think that we need to get off uh, sugar, uh, the sugar daddy uh, experiment. It's worked in terms of unprecedented success for English clubs, but if any modern fan thinks, Stan, this can only be done, we can only win Champions Leagues, we can only win Premier Leagues, we can only win Europa Leagues and FIFA Club World Cups via the sugar daddy model, I'd point to when I was nine to 14, 15, when six English club, uh, six um, Champions Leagues, European Cups as they were then, were won by three English clubs. 
Liverpool, Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa every year for six years. They didn't have loads of money then. They were just well organised. They spent their money well. So I would hope that that would be the future for English football. Nobody is saying not to invest in English football and not to have marquee players like Ronaldo come in or Paul Pogba or Mo Salah. I think that we're all just saying, can we cool down the system a little bit to make sure that it works for everybody, not just works for a few? And more importantly, doesn't encourage the kind of ownership which has seen a great football club in Chelsea that is, you know, has had historic success and is a cracking old club dragged through the mud. Yeah. Um, we got a big Liverpool following here in Ireland and, of course, who played for Liverpool. Um, one question that came in that I was thought was interesting is when Jurgen Klopp leaves and Michael Edwards leaves, like, how do Liverpool sustain their success compared to the big spenders? I think that Liverpool is a great example of... Firstly, supporters, group Spirit of Shankly, amongst others. Um, if you remember, they had a, a, a lot of supporters walked out, the, a very visible walkout of the COP when ticket prices were being mooted to, to go up. Um, and they were having none of it. If you look in Germany, they have a model 50 plus one, everything from hot dogs to hamburgers to toilet roll. Unless fans give it the green light, it, it ain't happening. And Liverpool are as kind of, in terms of a big club sense, a big pan-European club, as close to doing their work properly as, as, as any other. They realised that they, could, they perhaps could have sold to uh, an oligarch and spent endless amounts of money. But they went with FSG that has a, an existing sports ownership model, Boston Red Sox. And whatever you think of FSG, I don't think at the moment there's any whiff of they don't do their business properly within the laws of the United States and the United Kingdom where they're op they operate. What I would say in terms of Jurgen Klopp, Liverpool need to just keep him as long as they can, but always make sure that they have a contingency. I'm an Aston Villa fan. I don't think anybody doesn't think that if Steven Gerrard doesn't get Liverpool and um, Aston Villa into a a relatively comfortable position in the top half of the table that Liverpool in two or three years' time would come knocking. It just has to. It's like Chelsea having to go to Frank Lampard. It's like many years ago, Tottenham Hotspur had to go to Glenn Hoddle. Sometimes you just have to go with that guy that has such an emotional connection. So yeah. whether or not Stephen would be the next Liverpool manager, don't know. I think he'd be a very good age, 44, 45, 46. Um, and I think that in terms of Michael Edwards, I know they've got some cracking people there already. I met one of them, something completely different, David Woodfine. Their, their loans recruitment department generally all can see that when Mark, uh, Michael Edwards goes, somebody else will step into the breach from within. They're very much about promoting talent within. So I think that Liverpool behind the scenes, the administrative structure will be very, very strong and very, very solid. And Liverpool will continue to get bargains when I say bargains, you know, Mo Salah and Saido Mane at 30 million thereabouts rather than 80, 90 million. Jurgen Klopp is unique. Um, he is unique in modern football in the way that at Dortmund, Mainz, Dortmund at Liverpool, that he hasn't had to have a procession of 75, 80, 90 million pound players to get success. Fans, of course, watching this that are Barnsley, Bolton, Sunderland, 
uh, Scunthorpe fans will say, he spent 75 million on Van Dyke. He's just another big... Not quite. He's yeah. more old school in the fact that we need Van Dyke at this money to be able to then make the team significantly better. Um, I think that it will be fairly simple. I think that we'll see uh, Jürgen decide in his own time and will probably give Liverpool at least a year or two heads up. I think he's an honest enough man to say, um, I'm, uh, at the end of the 24-25 season, that's when I'm going. That will give Liverpool uh, administration all the opportunity to be able to put together a group of probably five or six names, which they'll sound out. All will have to have a philosophy of high-octane, high-pressing football. All will have to work within the existing model of players that are found for you to work with. There will be no benign dictators um, in the in the mould of the Arsene Wengers and the Fergies, which kind of makes me think, would Steven Gerrard, as such a big name at Liverpool, as and when he gets the job, would he go in and say, I want to run it all? Or would he go in as a head coach with Gary McAllister and be given... That, that potentially could be a problem, but that's way down the line. Um, I, think that, I think that the more I see it now, and I'm, the more I see Steven Gerrard's style of play, his clout, his ability to get players, um, his cachet around European and world football, that probably three years down the line from now um, is that Jurgen Klopp will maybe hand over the reins to Steven Gerrard. And it's very exciting. It's, it's a risk. As with all football managers, you know, Jose Mourinho went to United, didn't really work in the way that it wanted to. Spurs didn't really work the way that it wanted to. That's just the risk of, of modern day football management. But the one thing as a former Red that I know is that Liverpool Football Club, the organisation, is in the best um, fettle that it's been in the Premier League era, for sure. Right. Uh, final few questions, uh, Stan. Um, a word on Martin O'Neill because said we got a big Irish following and he would have managed you. What was he like? The gaffer. Yeah. What what you take of think of the manager? Did you enjoy your time with him? I loved it because um, at the time in my career I was struggling at Aston Villa. John Gregory wasn't playing me. It was obvious that I was surplus to requirements. And Martin came in and said, "Look, we'll help you with all of your off-field issues." Um, but I want you to play as a centre-forward. We want to get crosses in the box. We want to get the ball to your feet so you can turn and run at people. And Martin O'Neill, in tandem with um, John Robertson, Nottingham Forest, greatest all-time player that went everywhere with him. Um, Steve Wolford uh, went with him as well. Um, Seamus... uh, um, O'Donnell, uh, he, he was the goalkeeping uh, coach. Um, they went very much as a three or a four. And so Martin was the sort of dictator. He wouldn't take training very often. He'd come out at Leicester and he'd oversee and the players all of a sudden would sort of, because that's the kind of person he is, he demanded respect. But he was very much at his most successful when he had John Robertson and, and particularly Steve Wolford. I know that he had the spell in Ireland and I watched with, like everybody else did, how's this going to work? Roy Keane and, and Martin O'Neill, the dream team, two huge characters. And I think they had a lot of respect for each other. Um, but I don't think it worked as well as it did with John Robertson and Steve Wolford because quite simply from the fact that Martin, Robbo and Waller 
all worked with each other from Wickham Wanderers. They knew each other at Norwich, as I think as, as uh, Steve Wolford and, and Martin O'Neill, when Martin O'Neill was a player at Norwich in the 80s. So you're talking about a relationship that was 40 years in the making rather than one that was thrust together as a dream team. But I, I can't say anything other than um, Martin O'Neill rescued my career. I was only at Leicester with him for six months. Uh, he then went to Celtic. We had a little chat about going there. He took Chris Sutton um, and John Hartson to, to great success, of course, which is a little bit of a regret of mine. But for me, pound for pound, the best manager that I worked with, even though it was only for six months. And My guest on the show last week, he was a guy that played for Ireland in rugby and he, he struggled with mental health issues and he, his father committed suicide. But I was also YouTubing you last night and Googling you and I didn't realise that you also suffered from mental health. But I give my last guest last week and I give yourself great credit for coming out at a time when it wasn't cool to come out about these things. T t talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, it was 1998. Um, I had a little inkling when I was at Liverpool. So I joined Aston Villa in 97. Uh, I'd had two years at Liverpool before that. Scored a lot of goals and created a lot of chances between myself and Robbie Fowler. Um, and had two good years. Didn't win a trophy, but had two good years. We were this short. Lost 1-0 to Man United in the cup final. Um, just a little bit lacking in the league. But we had it was a talented team. But I remember towards my spell at Liverpool, being home in the Midlands and having a spell of three or four weeks. And, and my energy levels just tanked through the floor. And I was getting sort of suicidal ideation. I was like, should I end it? It was just strange. It was There was no delusions. There was no confusion. It was... Energy levels were low. I thought I was finding it, finding it difficult to motivate myself. And then I went to Aston Villa, and I went to Aston Villa, which is my club, and automatically think, once you sign on the dotted line, um, everything's going to be great because it's my club. I supported them since I was six or seven. And it, it, it's had the opposite effect. More pressure, more expectation from Villa fans on me because I was one of them. Um, wasn't scoring goals, wasn't playing well, wasn't enjoying my football. And life was just spiralling out of control on and off the pitch. And so from, I, I remember going to see the club physio and saying, I'm struggling. My energy levels are not good. This, I'm training as hard as I can, but this isn't right. Something's not right. So he said, come on, we'll go and see a, a, a psychologist. Went to see a psychologist and the psychologist said, oh, you know, play a couple of games, score a couple of goals, and you'll feel fine. I thought, hey, that's, that's not exactly good medical advice. So I took a second opinion, went to a clinic called the Roehampton Priory that's had lots of sportsmen, lots of, um, for want of a better word, celebrity, but it's, it's basically, it's a mental health hospital. Everybody, it's, it's, it takes in NHS payment, uh, patients, it takes in everybody. And I sat down with a psych, uh, um psychotherapist and also a uh, psychiatrist and they said right what are you doing here and I said this 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 and this and they said you've got classic clinical depression uh, and you've probably had it all the way all through your life in in various guises so um, I had intense therapy cognitive behavioral therapy I remember coming out giving a just a, a couple of paragraphs uh, press release through my then agent Paul Stretford. 
Paul Stratford is Wayne Rooney's agent to this day. And it said, um, Stan Collingwood has clinical depression. He, will, he won't be making himself available for Aston Villa for the foreseeable future. I got absolutely slaughtered in the press. I mean, I, I remember the, the Sun newspaper, they have like the Sun Says, which is a sort of opinion column on the, they used to have on the back page. And it's effectively said to Villa fans, drive him out of the club. How dare he say he's got depression? Depression is the woman living on the 50th floor of a apartment block in Peckham, which is true. Anybody can have depression, but it was very much used against me. And I was suicidal. It wasn't fun. Um, and so for me, talking about it wasn't cathartic. It was just a case of, I know that if one in three people struggle with this through their lifetime, or I know somebody that does, then there's lots of people out there that just aren't being able to talk about it because they're scared of being hammered. So I kept on banging the drum. When social media started 2000, 2007, 2008, I was on Twitter. So I've been on it for, what, 14, 15 years now. It was one of the things that I wanted to reach out to people most with. If you struggle, stand up and speak out. It's illegal to discriminate against somebody on the basis of their mental health status. Speak up, stand up. And I'm only one amongst a lot of people that have done that. But certainly I don't remember it happening back in the late 90s because people would literally just, you know, hammered day in, day out for talk. You're soft, pull your socks up, get on with it. Uh, which still some people think is a, is a, is a solution for mental health issues. Um, but I've been an ambassador for charities. I speak to lots of groups um, and I will always bang the drum. It's on the, the header in my Twitter profile, uh, mental health advocate, because one in three people pretty much will go through mental health struggles at some stage in their life. So it's just like having a broken leg. It's just like having a cancer. It's just like having any other illness is that you can have good days, bad days, but most importantly, you can contribute to society. It's yeah. not a death sentence. It's not people saying, woe is me, I'm going to lie on the sofa all day. For me, usually once a year when the clocks go back and the, the nights get dark early, I'll have a week or two, anytime between October and February, where I have a little bit of a wobble, get a little bit flat, a little bit low. Um, but as I'm speaking to you now, as soon as I'm finished, I shall get in the car, go to the gym. Uh, that's what gets me back on top amongst other things working, being active, punditry, involved in Southend United, which is a club that's very close to my heart, is that the, the message is stand up, speak out. You, you are as productive as anybody else anywhere on the planet. And so if that's the message that comes through from people like me, then at least people know, oh, he's got it and he can do this. He goes to the gym and runs every day. He can waffle shit about football. Uh, I can as well. So that, that, that's the message. No, I, I give you massive credit there, Stan. Um, final two questions then. Um, I just want to ask you, you're on about mental health is, and you're on about how social media came along. You're looking at someone like Harry Maguire now because he gets absolutely slated on social media. What advice would you have for him? Do you, think, do you think he even looks at his social media? I think as a player, you, all sh you always should be accepting of constructive criticism. If you have a bad game, it's not... It's not negative on your, it's not a negative mental health impact for somebody to say, Stan, you were really poor today. Your touch was poor, your heading was poor, your shooting. That's part of the game. If you can't, if you can't accept that, 
then you shouldn't be involved in a sporting arena. So you're looking at unjustifiable criticism and then you're looking at constructive criticism. So up to that bar where you are criticising somebody um, for their performance, as long as it's within the, the, the normal accepted bounds and remits, that's fine. If somebody does something wrong, Carl Walker in lockdown, Jack Grealish, you know, I send Jack the odd message and say, Jack, have you thought about that? I've been in that position and I took the wrong turn right. Turn left, the spotlight is much more, is that I think that kind of criticism is also good. But unfortunately, you know, I've had, I think there've been four people that have been arrested uh, and charged with various uh, crimes under the Electronic Communications Act, um, racially abusing me. That's not acceptable, it's illegal. And so if you, if you call people names that are illegal or outrageous or go beyond the pale, then you reserve the right to, I just, on social media, I just block people or mute people, move on. Um, it is very difficult now because I think that, particularly when you're a younger player, you don't always know where the fair boundaries are of criticism, constructive criticism and outrageous criticism. So you tend to read it all. And if you read it all, you're going to accept some very negative stuff seeping into you. So for Harry Maguire, look, he's a big, strong centre-half that is playing for arguably the world's biggest football club or one of them. Um, his profile went up massively because of England at the 2018 World Cup and then subsequent Euros. Um, I would imagine that he doesn't read a lot of his social media. And I think that my advice to, to all players is, is that if you see something that you think is out of order, block and move on. Yeah. That's it, block and move on. Don't answer them, don't respond to them, don't bite, don't have a nibble. Leave yeah. that to people like me that are long retired. Um, is that the only people that matter professionally is coaching staff and his teammates. They will guide him right. They'll believe you me. Somebody will go in the dressing room and say, Harry, you, were, you didn't pick up from that. Harry, you need to get rid there, stick it in rows. He'll get all of, the, all of the goodness that he needs within the dressing room. Unfortunately, though, social media is now a part of selling yourself as a brand and brand responsibilities for advertisers and sponsors. Um, if, it, if it was me today, uh, I would find it very difficult because I like to get involved in political or mental health battles and arguments. But I'm sure my agent would say, um, do the bare minimum. Thanks to the supporters for their amazing away travelling support today. Do your bit for your sponsors and leave it because... Um, if you have a propensity to being dragged down by it, it can drag you down very badly. Do I think that Harry Maguire is one of those guys? No. I think he'll bounce back and go on to have a fine career, as he already is. Yeah. Uh, finally, Stan, I just wanted to get a word on Southend United. I see you're after getting back involved there. Uh, what, what made you to go in there? Yeah, the club had had back-to-back -back relegations from relative safety in League One to being in the National League, so technically non-league, although most of the clubs are professional. Some big boys in there, Knox County, world's oldest professional club. Uh, you've got Stockport County, Chesterfield, that, of course, always been in third or fourth tier. Um, and so it was offering my support to the ownership at a difficult time. There wasn't a great deal of, um, of structure happening at the football club because the club had had to make cut its cloth not once with getting one relegation, but two relegations and a significant loss of income. So there were mistakes made along the way, but everybody makes mistakes. So as a former player that, that you know, I had a great, I only was there for six months, but I went from Crystal Palace 
reserves to Southend in the Championship, what is now the Championship, second tier. Scored 18 goals in 30, helped keep us up, went to Nottingham Forest for nearly £4 million. So I was included in the club, Southend United Club's legends uh, list and Nottingham Forest after that, actually, which is which, which great honours uh, that supporters and clubs remember you for what you've done. So it was always my intention to offer support to Southend, whatever they needed. If they needed me to do a little bit of cheerleading, if they needed me to be an ambassador, if they needed me to be to be able to reach out to clubs um, and to be able to get loan players, permanent players, media, commercial. So basically my role, it's, 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 the name is Senior Media Strategist. And effectively that helps with find and recruit players to be able to let academy players know there's a pathway to be able to come into the first team and go on and have great careers, give them the benefit of my experiences to be able to shake the trees and get commercial uh, and sponsors to, to join us uh, and supporters um, that are the most important to have a monthly supporters meeting to give them a clear access to the club and to, to let them know what's happening and why. Now, we move into a new stadium, 22,000 seater. The, the, the city is 350,000, which is, you know, a big metro area. So it could easily sustain 20,000. That would need to be a championship club, of course, not a, a National League club. But the future is very bright. Um, we're getting anywhere between, at the moment, seven and 8,000 supporters in the fifth tier, which is incredible. We're taking away a couple of thousand. So uh, I've just been on the phone this morning, funny enough, talking about lots of different issues. Um, and... We, an Irishman, Kevin Mayer, um, uh, of the diaspora Irish community. He's, he was born and bred in London, okay. but his, uh, his mum and dad are, are Irish. He played for Ireland at under age levels. Yeah. He's our head coach, uh, played 450 games for the South End. Um, we brought him in with a guy called Darren Curry and Mark Bentley as a coaching trio. And we went from being third bottom in the league at, on Christmas Day really struggled to adapt to non-league football, to now being comfortably mid-table and unbeaten in 13 games. Right. So, uh, yeah, fine club um, and one that is close to my heart. And if we can get back into the Football League as soon as possible, then I'll walk off into the sunset saying thank you very much, job done. Right. And very, very finally, Stan, I do this with all my guests. Uh, quick fire questions in 60 seconds. Go for it. Uh, Favourite food? Chicken. Favourite golf course? I hate golf. I loathe it. <laughs> I'm the same. Uh, how, how often do you do your dirty laundry? Not often enough, but uh, one support night. But I get other people to do it. <laughs> Favourite holiday? Seville or Miami. Who would play you in a movie? Denzel Washington. Go to karaoke song? Um, favorite karaoke song, come on, Stan, come on, Stan. Um, which is Lineman? Favorite movie, Papillon. Best book you ever read? Um, Inverting the Pyramid, Jonathan and Wilson, really good football book, right? And finally, Westlife for Boys on. Boy zone, picture of you all day long. 
right. Stan, thanks a million for giving up your time and good luck with South End United. Anytime. Speak okay. to you soon. Thanks, Stan. Thanks a million for that. And thanks for listening. And thanks again to Stan Collimore for giving up his time. Really nice guy. Uh, the Wi-Fi went at one stage, but he uh, he stuck with it and uh, he gave me... You know, I really like that he speaks his mind and he gave me his thoughts on, you know, a lot of deep issues going on there in the Premier League and in the UK at the moment. So thanks again to Stan Collymore and good luck with South End United. Uh, really, really top guy. Uh, until next time, we'll have someone else from the world of sport on. Remember, you can get this on Spotify and whatever what apps you get this on. And uh, I'm Neville O'Donoghue. I'm out of here and thanks for listening.